It's April 14th. Thanks for tuning in on this Wednesday morning. Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson, your host here with you. That was and is a LeBrook and the Soundmen from their album Desolation Sounds on Fallen Tree Records and I encourage you to check it out. We're uh, we're always grateful every single day. Samuel G. Brooks, the technical producer of this program. Wouldn't you say we're grateful that the the team at Ayla Brooks and Fallen Tree, they, they they've gifted us. They've, they've given us the license. They signed off on the contract and they licensed us to use their music here with the, the launch of Real Talk. Which Very is, cool stuff. Which, which is rare. I mean, like you don't usually get a, a recording act just kind of come to you and say, hey, put my album on the air. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get people saying that, but like also gifting it to you and saying like, this can be your theme music. This can be your opening music. It's like, it's fantastic. See, we, we started, but in any negotiation, you start high <laughs> And then you wind up sort of where you in the sweet spot where you want it after a negotiation. So we originally asked Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen to, to appear here live as our live studio band every single day, every single morning to play us in and out of breaks. I mean, I, I don't Why think we have the room for that. Why wouldn't they? Well, this is this is when we were considering a much, 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 much bigger, larger. Okay, digs. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But it, as you can see on our camera Four sponsorship on camera Four still available, by the way, at this time, media at Ryan is where you want to send all advertising and sponsorship inquiries. Uh, yeah, we could have fit him in. We could have fit him in sort of right there to the side of the produce, producer's desk. But uh, yeah, I would <laughs> have to build up some sort of a podium or something like that. Um, thanks for being here. Uh, just in case rumors start, we didn't actually approach Ayla Brook and the Soundman to be our live studio. I, ha- I have a feeling that um, everything is so supercharged these days in this pandemic era that you've got. Sometimes you've got to clarify when you're kidding about bringing together nine people in a, in a small room every single morning. You might want to clarify. So let, let's get on to that. We saw that that we saw kind of the the powder keg nature of dialogue and of the the infusion of opinion into commentary about public health measures uh yesterday our conversation with dr shazma Mathani and uh with uh, tim caulfield a professor at the university of alberta the author of is gwyneth paltrow wrong about everything uh, and other great books, including his most recent one, Relax, Damn It, and of course, the host of the Netflix series, A User's Guide to Cheating Death. Oh, and he's on like Royal Societies, and he's a Canada Research Chair and all this other stuff. And, oh, and by the way, Dr. Mathani is, a, is an ER doc. Uh, I didn't do her, her, her career actually total justice yesterday. I kept introducing her as, as an ER physician at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Edmonton, also failing to mention she splits duties at the Stollery Children's Hospital as well. So she actually um, sort of uh, is, is a big part of two emergency room teams uh, in two of the busiest ERs, two of the busiest hospitals in the province of Alberta, and, and certainly two of the busiest hospitals uh, in the country. So great conversation there. We were talking about some of the assertions made in a video that's gone viral from from an Edmonton based uh, health and wellness uh, guy. He calls himself a mental wealth coach by the name of Kaylor Betts. And we talked about it yesterday and the feedback from you has been really excellent. Um, letting us know how you felt about the conversation with Dr. Bethany and, and Dr. Uh, Professor Caulfield, um, letting us know how you feel about the idea of discussing these types of things, essentially, you know, complaints or criticisms or alternatives 
to existing and current public health measures. And, and we take everything that you send us into consideration. It was it was great to keep an eye yesterday on our hashtag Real Talk RJ, which is powered by Park Power. As you know, that's a great way to get in touch with us, especially I mean, during the show, we're keeping an eye on it. But through the day, it's also how we kind of understand where the audience is at. And we know that many of you are going to be listening to this podcast. The majority of our audience will be listening to this podcast now through this day and in the days to come. And, and it's a great way for us to be able to circle back on stories and conversations that we have and, and keep those conversations going. I wanted to clarify something. Uh, Mr. Betts himself was posting on his Instagram stories yesterday, and he's, and he's gained um, thousands of Instagram followers in the last while. And if you're wondering what I'm even talking about, you're wondering what this was all about. I mean, the first thing I would do is go back to yesterday's show. You can find our show anywhere you get your podcast. You can find it on our YouTube channel and, and, and have a listen to my conversation with Shazma and Tim. That'll set the scene essentially. And, and it's really unfair and almost dangerous of me to try to to, to boil down or summarize Kaylor Betts arguments, his nine minute video in, in 30 seconds or so. But the basic message is he, he's sick of the lockdown. He, he believes that that society um, and, and he's talking about government and pharmaceuticals and, and the healthcare industry uh, endeavors essentially or, or in his words, you know, does better or, 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 you know, thrives when people are kept sick as opposed to uh, achieving or maintaining wellness. And he talked about his own personal principles. And he talked about health and nutrition and and, you know, maintaining cardiovascular health and all these types of things and, and, and said, I do this because I don't want to take up a hospital bed. And he talked about, you know, in, instead of some of the things that government has been funding through the pandemic, instead, they should be providing people with nutritious food. And he talked about comorbidities saying, you know, quoting numbers from the CDC that some people have taken issue with and, and saying, you know, the majority of people that are dying from COVID-19 have all these comorbidities, other things. In other words, they were dying anyway. And that's obviously outraged a lot of people, I think, for pretty obvious reasons. You know, a comorbidity could be that, you know, you have asthma or, you know, you had pneumonia when you were six or maybe you're fighting cancer and you're, you know, you're on chemo or something like that. Right. Or, or a million other factors that could come into play. So we had this conversation. And so Mr. Betts is saying on his Instagram stories yesterday, you know, I'm for, you know, he's saying I'm working with Ryan Jesperson to bring a panel onto Real Talk, you know, to put my position forward and, and medical experts and this type of thing. And so a significant number of people reached out to me yesterday. I wanted to address it right out of the gates today. Before we get to our first interview, before we start talking about some of the subjects we're going to tackle today, like 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 vaccinating firefighters. And um, and I want to talk to you about a former Edmonton oiler. May he rest in peace. Colby Cave, his wife, Emily, uh, just shortly after laying Colby to rest, they celebrated his life. Uh, the one year anniversary of his passing just recently and, and Emily Cave posting a heartbreaking message on Instagram yesterday about why she's leaving the Internet, basically. I mean, you want to talk about toxic discourse? Some of the things that people are saying to a grieving widow are unbelievable. I want to get to that. I want to shine a light on that story. I want to talk about that. We're going to get into the results today of of our question of the week presented by Y Station, our official research and strategy partner, our question of the week last week on Alberta's curriculum rewrite. Uh, all, an almost record number of you chimed in on that. More than 2,100 people took our question of the week, took that survey. <laughs> to put that into perspective, by the way, that's still less than half of the number of people, Sam, that took our question of the week, took our extended survey on Aloha Gate, on the government officials traveling to Hawaii and Mexico and Arizona. And that Still, there was like 4,500 people responded to that one. 
That was wild. But we'll get into the Alberta curriculum stuff, too. Plus, of course, we're going to talk about the federal government. If you saw my tweet this morning or if you've seen my post on my Instagram stories, we let you know every morning what's coming up on the show. We're going to talk about Ottawa, essentially, you know, I'll say bailing out Air Canada. Um, but but we'll ask our lead off guest if, if he would agree with that. John Graddick, a former Air Canada executive. He's a business professor. He's like an aviation professor. How cool is that? At McGill University, he's going to join us. We'll talk about that bailout. I want to I want to ask him if he thinks that that compares to the federal government investing in, for example, TMX, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I want to ask him what the aviation industry is going to look like. Um, is this essentially nationalizing Canada's airline again? I mean, is Air Canada essentially becoming a crown corporation again? The bailout's massive, almost 65% of the, of the value of the company. Uh, so I think that that's pretty you know, interesting and worth talking about. And then we're going to get a panel together Another Real Talk roundtable coming up in about, I guess, about 25 minutes from now. Uh, the University of Alberta Law School is one of the Canadian universities. And, and you can see the stories. If you've been paying attention, universities across Canada are hiking tuition in a big way. I've got an email here I'm going to read from from Zachary, who's an MBA candidate. Uh, he, he's earning his master's in business administration. They're looking at a, a tuition hike of 67 percent. Uh, it makes the U of A law school increase sound small, but it's still massive, a 45 percent increase uh, to law school tuition at the University of Alberta and critics of it and, and students that are currently in the program are saying that it actually I mean, it's about more than the money. They're saying that this is going to exacerbate some of the issues that the law uh, field that, that, that the profession is facing right now, which is, you know, the number of women getting involved, number of black and indigenous people of color getting involved. We're going to have that conversation coming up. I'm looking forward to that. All of that said, here's the deal with Kaylor Betts. You've written in and, and, and some of you have said, hey, I'd really like to hear him on the show. I'd really like to hear his perspective. I think he's worth hearing out. I think that, that real talk is the type of forum where we could have these conversations and, and we shouldn't just write off people's opinions. We should have debates. Other people are writing in and saying, like, saying please don't like please don't it's insulting to healthcare workers it, it does damage to public messaging it's an irresponsible use of a media platform like this and i wanted to clarify as i said yesterday but maybe i didn't get into it in as much detail as necessary so yesterday's tuesday we had our panel tuesday morning on monday afternoon after everything went sideways over the weekend with Kaylor Betts Instagram posts and his assertions about COVID and living healthy and mental wealth, as he calls it. I talked to him as I would on Monday. I talked to him and I said, hey, listen, uh, you know, we're planning on essentially, uh, you know, putting a panel together to, to discuss and ultimately, you know, to critique the claims that you're making. And I wanted to give him an opportunity to be represented on the panel. This is ultimately the panel that became Dr. Shazmuthani and Tim Caulfield. Now, to be clear, those two weren't confirmed yet, and neither of them had consented. I want to be very clear. Neither of them had agreed to appear on a panel with Kaylor Betts at that time. But when you're producing a segment, you got to start somewhere and you start with who's the key voice or one of the key voices we're going to have here. And then you build around them. It's like building a sales network or anything else. You got to start somewhere, build out from there. Where does it make sense? How do you lay the groundwork? You know, pour the foundation for the panel. So I talked to him and he said, well, you know, he said he, he was hesitant. Um, and, and the call was off the record. And I'm not going to quote anything he said on the phone call. I respect that. Um, but we had a candid conversation and, and he had some hesitation with coming on a panel that ultimately, I think, probably would have eaten him alive. 
And he said, what would be important to me, he said, I would like to bring on a, a credentialed, uh, a respected medical voice, a voice in the medical profession that can support some of my assertions. And I said, as any producer or host would, you track down that expert, you find somebody, we'll vet them, we'll determine if it's a credible voice, and then if so, then we'll put a panel together that would involve other panelists of our invitation, right? Panelists of our choice that we'd put together and we'd have a round table, a healthy debate or dialogue around some of the things that I think are up for discussion and debate, like the mental health impacts of COVID or does good nutrition and you know diet and exercise help bolster your immune system? Maybe not help you fight COVID, certainly not keep you immune from it, but should we be having a conversation about immune systems and diet and exercise? The general idea, I hope you're getting it. So that's where the conversation was, and that's where the conversation remained. So I'm not working with Kaylor Betts to put together a roundtable panel of him and panelists of his choosing. And of course, this show will always maintain the editorial standards that we always have. We so appreciate your engagement. It means a lot to us that you take the time to chime in and let us know what your priorities are, what's important to you and what you'd like to hear or not hear on Real Talk. These conversations happen because we've got the incredible support of our presenting sponsor, Bitcoin Well. If you missed Bitcoin Well founder and CEO Adam O'Brien on the show, you have to check it out. If for no other reason that he became and will forever be solidified in the record books as the first Real Talk guest to deploy a flamethrower live in an interview. Sam Brooks, have you ever seen anything like that in live media before? No. I'm not so um, sure it was that safe. The 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 science demonstration from uh, from from Bunsen and Beaker was close, but no, I agree. Bunsen and Beaker, that was a great segment, and yeah. actually, I saw that they tweeted this morning. I literally just retweeted them. Oh yeah. Don't worry, we'll get back to Bitcoin Well in just a second. I promise, Bitcoin Well, we'll get back to you in just a second. But did you see this? Bunsen and Beaker were tweeting earlier this morning. They basically said that that like the chance of getting attacked by a bear is around one in a million. This is roughly the same risk, potentially not confirmed, of developing a dangerous blood clot from the AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Said Bunsen and Beaker, if you go outside, you're good to take the chance on the vaccine. I appreciated that tweet. Has nothing to do with Bitcoin well. Absolutely nothing to do with Bitcoin well. But sometimes we swerve all over the place, right? That's how the show rolls every once in a while. So Adam O'Brien, he didn't just deploy a flamethrower. On Real Talk yesterday, he also talked about Bitcoin's rapid rise. He took on some of the criticisms around crypto and Bitcoin in particular, the, the ecological impact of mining and a lot of other really cool stuff. It was a candid conversation. I enjoyed it. You can, too. If you didn't see it, check it out on our YouTube page or, of course, download the podcast link. And you can learn more about Bitcoin well under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. All right, we're looking forward to checking in with uh, McGill University's Professor uh, John Graddick a little later on in the show. He'll talk about Ottawa's investment in Air Canada. Um, it, it's one of these things pe people always use the airline industry. Um, and typically it's Bombardier that people will invoke in Western Canada when talking about federal support uh, in, in different ways, shapes and forms of 
businesses, typically here in the oil and gas industry, you'll hear people assert that, you know, Ottawa's support has been insufficient. Um, and, and I know that I'm opening up a can of worms right now because people will point out that like Ottawa's bought pipelines and is giving more than a billion dollars to clean up orphan wells and all that kind of thing. But let's not get facts get in. Let's not let facts get in the way of good politicking here. Right. So so we'll hear from time to time. People say if this was the aviation industry, you better believe Ottawa would be there to save the day. If this was Bombardier, we already know how Ottawa would respond. And and, and a good portion of that sentiment, a, a good percentage of that is is based in, in historical fact and in reality. And uh, and it's true. The federal government, to a certain degree, and in some cases, provincial governments do play a role in supporting businesses, trying to keep them afloat. Right. I mean, look what Premier Jason Kenney and the United Conservatives just did with TMX. Right. They wagered, they bet like a casino bet more than a billion dollars on a Trump presidency to, to try to keep that pipeline moving. Jason Kenney's bristled at reporters that have asked about that. He says this project would have been dead in the water months ago had we not stepped in. So governments of different political stripes certainly feel like it's appropriate from time to time to invest in or prop up or support or buy into or bail out corporations, including Air Canada. And that's a story that we're following. Before we get to that story, Sam, we've been endeavoring to get to our results from our Real Talk question of the week. We call it our Get Real question of the week. And each and every week, we put it out at ryanjesperson.com. If you're already signed up and you've taken it, you may be part of our panel, which means you get an email reminder each and every week. And we appreciate the people that contribute to that uh, each and every week. This past week, uh, we asked you how you feel about Alberta's curriculum rewrite. And and boy, did you speak up on mass. A total of 2,118 surveys were completed through um, my social media channels, through ryanjesperson.com and the Y Station panel, the Y Station panel population. There are official research Research and strategy partner. Um, the survey conducted between April 4th to 11th to give you some context here. And the survey, very popular with our audience. Uh, as mentioned, it was our second largest set of completions ever, uh, just over 2,100 of you. Now, here's the thing the demographic skew in this survey was really interesting. And if, and if you support us on Patreon, if you're one of our Patreon supporters, we're so grateful for that. Thanks. And you can find more details on our website about that. You've already received this top line report, it's called. This week, it's 20 pages. The top line report that gets into some of the, the data breakdowns here and the, the analysis of these polling results. I, I think it's one of the coolest things that we're able to offer you as audience members. And, and in this one, we learn, we see that 75% of respondents, three quarters of the 2,100 of you that completed the survey are female, which is a really unusual skew for our surveys. Typically-ish, uh, it's, it's about 52 to 55, maybe 56% women. This one's 75. And, and so, you know, we believe that our survey was probably shared widely uh, among groups of educators, of teachers, and that perspective certainly shines through strongly in the responses. Generally speaking, and Sam's going to get up some of our highlights uh, in just a few minutes, uh, is Gradic ready to go? Okay, I'll tell you what we'll do, because I don't want to leave him waiting, but we'll get into this after the fact. The curriculum, safe to say, is deeply unpopular. Uh, with parents, with educators, with Albertans in general. Uh, can you show me just just one of the highlights, Sam? You want to put just one of these up on the screen and then we'll get into this in more robust fashion in just a second. Here, here's an example of what we're talking about. Um, when you spoke up, we asked you who are the most appropriate sources for decisions made around the curriculum. 98% of you said current teachers. 98%. No surprise. 96% of you said subject matter experts. 85% said retired teachers. 
Uh, when we asked you who are the most inappropriate sources for decisions made around the curriculum, the most inappropriate sources, 95% of you said political staff, 88% of you said elected officials, and 69% of you said government ministry staff. So in other words, there's a bit more confidence in government ministry staff, the non-political side, you know, the people answering to the deputy ministers. And then the more that it gets politicized, the less confidence you had in this whole thing. We'll get back to this a little later on in the show. We got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm very excited about it. Very quickly, wanted to remind you, the team at Eden Landscaping is chomping at the bit, set to turn dreams to reality. They design and build people's dream outdoor spaces, which means that that right now, ground is thawing, and they are ready to rock and roll. You don't have to hire a landscape architect and then hire a team to build the dream you've had drafted up. They handle the whole thing. And they've been doing it for more than 20 years. If you check out landscapeedmonton.ca, you can see examples of the amazing work that they've done. Sam and I yesterday were dreaming big about swim spas and fire pits and outdoor cooking areas. We didn't even totally get into the cooking area dream design. If you were going to have an outdoor cooking space, what would be one thing you would have built into it if you were truly living the dream? I've always thought it would be incredible to have a sink in a counter outside. I think that would be like the crown jewel for me if there was a way to plumb in the outside. And I, I think the guys at Eden Landscaping could probably figure that out. So, for are you, you telling me that you would plumb in water before you'd plumb in craft beer? Ooh. Well, I mean, now I've got the counter, so now I can add a beer tap. See, to now it. we're talking. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now we're talking. Eden Landscaping can do it. LandscapeEdmonton.ca. Also, a big shout out to the team at Grand Dog Essentials. Quality raw food. I've been telling you that our dogs, Moses and Monroe, they're different dogs. They're different scenarios. They're different stories, different sensitivities. Moses is turning nine. He's a boxer that's had some gut issues. Monroe's just turning two. A beautiful, lively black lab. They need different things when it comes to their diet. And the team at Grand Dog has worked with us to help sort it out. Plus, they deliver to our door as they do for anybody in Edmonton, Calgary or Central Alberta. It's a great service and they love consulting to find out what their customers need most. You'll find out more at granddog.ca and if you use the promo code REALTALK, they'll take 10% off your first time order at Grand Dog Essentials. This is a story that people are talking about across the country. The federal government, uh, an almost $6 billion bailout Uh, By Ottawa, Air Canada now promising to provide refunds to passengers whose flights are canceled due to the pandemic. Critics here are saying essentially what's happening here. They're saying that that Ottawa is nationalizing the airline again. Uh, John Graddick's been a lecturer, a headhunter, a business person. He's got a number of different certifications out of the University of Montreal, Carleton University, University of Western Ontario, a former executive with Air Canada. Uh, he's also done work in uh, with Canadian Pacific Railway, and he uh, lectures. He's a professor of business at McGill University in Montreal. Basically, if you want to talk aviation in Canada, this is the guy you want to talk to. John, we're really grateful that you've made time for us making your Real Talk debut this morning. Welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here, Ryan. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's get at it. Hey, let's get at it and let's pull no punches. John, You've the, the best part I'm thinking uh, of talking to you is the fact that you've got a ton of experience from a number of different perspectives. You've been in the boardrooms with airlines. You understand transport issues in Canada. And of course, you understand the government side and the business angles as well. Is it fair to call this a bailout? Is this nationalizing the airline? How would you characterize what's going on? 
Well, I think it's bridge financing more than anything else. It's really money that the government's basically providing Air Canada at this first instance with enough cash to make sure it's still around when the industry has people allowed to fly back on airplanes. So it really, you know, bailout, you know, when, I, when we talk about bailout, I think of, you know, Chrysler and GM and what happened about, you know, 10 or 12 years ago where, you know, the jobs were going to go south the border if we didn't basically into the business. That's a bailout. This is not a bailout. This is basically just, you know, a bridge loan that will, that's, you know, for the most part, you know, fully repayable back to the Canadian taxpayer, uh, albeit at, you know, pretty, pretty interest, pretty low interest rates. But it's, it's, it's all repayable, like $5.5 billion out of the $6 billion is repayable. Uh, and, yeah, you get some residual value uh, that the government's negotiated, $500 million worth of equity in the business. And it's not, it's not, you know, you're not taking over the business. It's not a crown corporation. You're not nationalizing the business. You're participating in the business, and, and you're participating to get the upside. The airline business will come back. You've got a chance to basically come in low, buy low, and sell high. And I think that's where the government is saying we're taking a risk that we're coming into this at a point where we're going to buy low and we're going to basically hopefully tear, you know, be able to get out uh, at a higher price and basically have that return back to the Canadian taxpayer. That's the deal. You sound pretty bullish on the on the future of of air travel in the airline industry. I mean, I think it's probably obvious to suggest that that many people are pretty eager to be able to travel again. Uh, there's a little bit of time between now and then, depending on who you talk to, depending on where you're from and where you're going. Uh, but what gives you the confidence that the airline industry will bounce back in Canada? In Canada, you know, you can't get away without getting on an airplane and getting from point A to point B. Hmm. You know, if you if you're, you know even if you're flying. You know, from Edmonton to Vancouver. If you don't take a flight, what do you do? Get in the car and drive? You know, it's 16 hours, 18 hour drive. You get from Edmonton to Toronto, three day drive, if you're, you know, all the way to speed limits. But, you know, it, it, you know, air travel is an essential part of the Canadian infrastructure. If, you know, without air, you know, we're back on rail. And, you know, everybody knows the rail structure looks like. Uh, and, you know, we're going to be looking at trying to get, you know, from point A to point B in Canada in a very, very securitous and very, very slow way. So it's fundamental to the economy, to the success of the business and the infrastructure for tourism and a hospitality business in Canada, you know, very much depends on the airlines bringing Canadians and global citizens to, in fact, enjoy, you know, the Canadian infrastructure we have for, for tourism. So it's, it's a key industry. It's essential. Should we assume that we're going to be hearing more stories similar to this that involve other airlines? I mean, is that the most obvious question I could possibly ask you? Yeah, that, you know, that, that, that's a slam dunk. You know, right? it's, it's, you know you, you, you've got WestJet that's sitting there in Ottawa right now negotiating a similar type deal. You know, WestJet is not going to be looking at equity. That's for sure. I think our friends at Onyx, uh, you know, have basically made it very, very clear that, you know, they're not a proponent of government ownership any any way, shape or form. So if, if you know the deal with WestJet will be basically low interest loans, um, and loans are going to pay back. You know, I think Air, WestJet's already started the process of refunding passengers who were affected by the COVID shutdowns last year. Um, so then there, there'll, there'll probably be a couple of billion dollars for our friends at WestJet. Um, you know, Sunwing has already got four hundred million. You know, Porter may get you know a couple hundred million to help them restart. Um, the big question right now is transact. And, you know, what do you do with Transat? And, you know, is there anything that the government can do given the structure of how it's set up these these deals? Uh, does Transat, you know, get anything? 
going to get anything. And how, how confident are you, Canadian taxpayer, that, you know, if you do give a loan to Transat, given its current status, you know, are, are they going to be able to repay the loan? You know, is it a going concern? Is it something that you feel comfortable with that that airline really has a chance of surviving? Because if you give Air Transat 500 million bucks and they go to CCAA within six months, hasta la vista 500 million. So, you know, it's, it's got to be structured very differently. And I'm, I'm really anxious to see how Mike Sabia and the rest of the team at Finance uh, cut, cut up a deal with, with Transat. Hey, John, not to get too into the weeds, but my understanding of Transat is, is, is very, like, entry level. I'm in the shallow end of the pool on this one. I understand them to be um, um, charter carriers, right? So they fly to, like, tropical destinations in the winter and European destinations in the summer, something like that. But, but what is it that's, what, what makes their business model so different or what makes their challenges so unique? I'd say it's really the management team at Transat that really they've kind of scattered their focus. They basically, they, they have an airline with 33 airplanes, which are great airplanes. Uh, they also have 5,000 hotel rooms in Mexico. And so they're trying to cover both sides of the fence by basically saying, well, we, not only do we have the airplanes, we also have the hotel rooms. We'll, we'll get people, we'll get profit on the flight. We'll also get profit in the hotel rooms. What's happening is that they kind of got distracted. And so, you know, they put a lot of money into the hotels, billions of dollars into the hotels, and kind of let the airline kind of run on its own, um, which, is, which is fine if the airline, you know, was running in an environment where you had lots of profitability. The airline business, per se, is not a lot of margins. And now, you know, when I worked in business, it was like 2 or 3% you know, return on revenue, you know, their margin. Um, you know, and then I worked for Canadian Pacific and I was looking at, you know, 20 or 30% of my revenue, 30 to profitability. I said, whoa, wrong business. So, you know, the airline business is very thin on margins. Uh, and once the, you know, once the economy starts to drop and you have people not wanting to fly and, or you have a price war that's in place, you're on very, very, you know, thin ice. And I think that, you know, Air Transat back in 2009 basically said, we're up for sale because we're not, we're not good at this. There's too many ups and downs in a business. Please, somebody buy us out. And Air Canada made the offer, you know, eight bucks a share, and they ended up paying 18 bucks or offering 18 bucks. And then it tumbled down to five bucks. And then Air Canada walked away because the Europeans said anti-competitive. Hmm. So yeah, Air Transat is a is a is a is a very different animal. They're they're on life support. You know, so, in much worse condition than West Generation. John, there's, there's, uh, I'm, I might be trying to, I might be guilty of trying to put too much into one question here, but I think you'll know what I'm getting at. So, so you may have some people right now that that have flights or flight credits, or let's just say that Air Transat's got some of their money, and one of their big concerns is going to be that if insolvency becomes a reality, if the company goes belly up, their cash is gone, their vacation rebate is gone, and that means a lot to a lot of people for obvious reasons. Uh, Air Canada getting the bailout here is also promising to provide refunds to passengers whose flights are canceled due to the pandemic. I'm referencing some great reporting by business reporter Rosa Sabat, the Toronto Star. But Air Canada has also included this clause about future refunds saying that a force majeure event could give the airline a legal right, so say critics, to refuse refunds in the event of a flight cancellation. They're being accused of maybe some bad faith, small print shenanigans here. So what's your message to the Canadians that have money tied up in airlines right now that maybe have their hearts in their throats a little bit? Well, I think that, you know, I, I, and I spoke to Rosa when she wrote the article and I, and I, and I finally pointed out to her, I said, this is way too, but an escape clause 
for the airlines. I think they've got to really, you know, narrow it down just a bit more to get it. So, you know, people can understand it's a contract that you're getting into when you buy an airplane ticket. You have to understand the conditions. And unfortunately, there's about 90 pages of conditions that the airlines have when you buy your ticket. You don't see any of that when you buy your ticket electronically on the Air Canada website. So, yeah, they're, they're, you know, I, I, I hope Air Canada is not trying to pull a fast one. If they are pulling a fast one, you know, I think, you know, the, the press, I, mean, I think Rosa is going to go after them. I think, you know, uh, Carl Lukash in Halifax or our passenger right sound will be on like a, like, like a dirty shirt. Yeah, so, uh, but it, 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 they'll, they'll have to clean up that, that, that wording. It doesn't make any sense. John, so, what's your you know, what, what is what would you say to Canadians that that right now do have flight credits, with, regardless of airline, or is that too difficult to to, to have a blanket statement? Uh, there's no blanket statement. I think each carrier basically is on his own. You're talking about people who bought tickets a year ago on Air Transat, who you know are sitting on pins and needles. Uh, am I getting my money back? And if, you know, the, the sooner you make your your claim to Air Transat. You know, the better it's going to be for you to basically get, you know, have a chance of getting money back. You sit back and wait for a transaction to give you the money. Not going to happen very quickly. So it, you you got to be you got to be aggressive and you know go after Canada, go after WestJet, go after Transat now uh, and get your in there quickly because otherwise, you know, with Air Transat you could be. Uh, John, uh, in closing, I'm so grateful you were able to make time for us. I know a lot of people want to talk to you today. Sam, can, can, can we take him full screen so we can see your background here? For the, I know a lot of people are going to be listening to this on the podcast, so I'll do my best to describe what your background looks like. It's an Is it an Airbus Zero E? It kind of looks like a passenger version of the Stealth Bomber. I've never seen anything <laughs> like it. What is this aircraft behind you? That's, uh, that's Airbus's uh, hydrogen, hydrogen-powered airplane. Uh, and it, it's, it's basically sitting on a drawing board for first flight in 2030. So that's basically, so everybody who's talking about sustainability, environmental responsibility, and talking about the airlines contributing to greenhouse gases by all of their airplane emissions on, on fuel. This is one of, uh, of several attempts by the industry to kind of, you know, address availability of aircraft that will have profile when it comes to emissions. Very cool. It looks absolutely amazing. And it's very wide bodied, isn't it? Almost like I'm picturing like it looks like you'd almost have like a conference room in there. <laughs> it's a it's a blended wing. It's called a blended wing airplanes sit in the wings. So you, you basically, you know, the passenger cabin basically is extended into the wings. Uh, and it's a very, very, it's very, very uh, flat. Not a very, the opposite of an A380 is probably the height of a uh, I don't know, seven, triple seven, and it can and it can carry you know eight hundred people. Uh, so it's it's a um, very you know the design's been around for a few years in terms of trying to get these blend up and running with uh, fuel, diesel fuel, uh, but it's not working with uh, that's going to work for hydrogen. Wow. Uh, John, thanks for making time for us today. I, I just, I, I love it. I, I, I know what I'm Googling after the show. That's for sure. I got to learn more about this aircraft. Thanks for making time for us today. It's my pleasure, Ryan. Have a listeners in alberta hey thanks very much john uh john graddick um obviously you know minor interruptions there in our connection but we sure appreciate it and we were able to hear most of what he was saying but uh boy is that aircraft ever cool that that airbus uh 
Yeah, the, I was drooling over that. That's that, really cool. I'm trying to envision. So you're saying you're sitting in the wings? So is it like there's two? We have to Google this. I, I get, our real talkers can do it as we speak, but but we're into one right now. Once we're live, we're we're flying in the clouds as we speak. I can't be googling this type of thing. But so it almost you're almost envisioning if 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 the wings are going out, you're sitting in the wings. So there's like two cabins, kind of. I mean, technically one cabin, but kind of two. I, I think so, and I also think like looking at the looking at the the picture of it, which was just a zoom background. It like it almost looks like it has like skylights in it because like part of me is looking is like, well, if the cabin's in the wings, like do you get windows? Uh, but yeah. it's like, but then also like the the turbines like across the back of it, and and that it runs on hydrogen. That's what's so cool. Yeah. Um. I, whenever I think of things that run on hydrogen, I need to do more reading on this because I just picture like the atom bomb, and I'm I just I you know. But I'm looking right now as we speak at Airbus.com and they've got a really neat feature on it and and you can read up uh, on it there. Airbus, three concepts for the world's first zero emission, zero emission commercial aircraft. What? Nobody's happier than Leonardo DiCaprio. Now people can take his protests on the oil sands seriously because he can fly around in his zero emissions hydrogen plane. (laughs) What do you say now? We're like, well, there's still the there's still the yachts, Leo. There's still the yachts. Uh, They said this could enter service by 2035. Um, Wow. Clean aviation fuel. Hydrogen is a primary power source. Um, Huh. Okay, I'll read this when we're not live on the air. This is really neat stuff. Our thanks to, to John Graddick for joining us. As mentioned, he's a business professor out of McGill University. He's kind of one of the voices on the aviation industry in Canada. He's a member of the Transportation Appeal Tribunal of Canada. They, they adjudicate decisions made by Transport Canada. So people complain about Transport Canada's decisions. Then they go to the people like John. Um, he's been an executive with uh, Synergy Technologies. He was CEO there where they worked on synthetic fuels, heavy oil upgrading. He's worked at Canadian Pacific Railway. He's been an executive for Air Canada in operations, marketing and planning. So the guy knows his knows his stuff. We appreciate that he took the time to join us. We're going to talk about a big tuition increase. Uh, we're seeing these stories across Canada, and uh, that includes the University of Alberta, uh, includes their faculty of law. We're going to talk to a lawyer and a couple of uh, law students in just a moment. Um, wanted to remind you that if your spring involves or your summer is going to involve a move, you're going to want to get one of these pod style moving containers. Uh, you know, gone are the days w- where people have the big 18 wheeler show up in front of their house and it's blocking the street traffic and all the neighbors are annoyed and the ramps down and all of a sudden you're not ready. You know, you're still wrapping up the, 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 the fine china and you're wrapping up your wine glasses and newspapers and the movers are waiting to go and you're sweating and you haven't even had a chance to say goodbye to the house that you brought your babies home to. The pod style moving container allows you to take your time and move at your pace. And when you're ready to go, then Alta Moving and Storage will get that pod to the destination where it needs to go. And if you need some storage in the long term or the short term, in the meantime, as you might say, they've got you covered. You can check them out at altastorage.ca and make sure you let them know that you heard about Alta Moving and Storage on Real Talk. The team at Kubi Energy presents positive reflections here on the show every Monday, or at least let's say on the first show of the week, we get the week started off on the right foot with your photos, your videos, your feel-good stories, your reflections, your ruminations, your positive reflections presented by Kubi Energy. We accept them at talk at ryanjesperson.com. Kubi 
is Tesla certified and all their installers are either electrical apprentices or journeyman electricians. So you know the job's getting done right. You know your solar panels aren't going to conk out. You know the place isn't going to start on fire because crazy Uncle Willie twisted a few wires together. You know, told you about a few shortcuts that can save you a few bucks on wire when you're putting in your solar. That's not what you want. You want the team at Kubi Energy Plus. They do all the paperwork to get you your rebates. So you end up spending less than you might have to. You invest in your sustainable energy future with Kubi Energy. Before we get to our panel, I wanted to read a, an email that we got to talk at ryanjesperson.com. This uh, from a, a, a viewer, a listener by the name of Zachary. Uh, Zachary is an MBA candidate. He's earning his MBA at the University of Alberta, and he actually wrote his email to Advanced Education uh, Minister Nick Letis, and he CC'd talk at ryanjesperson.com, which we appreciate. He says, Minister, the proposed University of Alberta MBA tuition hike of 67% is unreasonable and unacceptable. Your government has already eliminated the student tax credit, which increased the real cost of tuition for all students in Alberta. The average MBA student is a late 20s or early 30s professional just starting or advancing their career. Where do you think they're going to get another $9,635 from? It'll come out of money they would have probably spent in the local economy. The very spending we need to ensure our local economy continues or they'll need to take out more student loan debt, the servicing cost of which will also dampen local consumer spending. Online MBA programs from around the world are quickly becoming less expensive, and many students would end up pulling their money altogether from the U of A and instead investing in degrees from out of province or even out of country. Do you want this, minister? Do you want educational dollars leaving the province altogether? The carbon tax cost me $300 last year after the rebate, says Zachary. You fought so hard with money, time, and political capital to save me from spending an extra $300 on this job-killing carbon tax. Surely, Minister, you would agree pulling 32 times this amount from the local economy would kill 32 times the jobs. I need you to fight this ridiculous and unaffordable tuition hike 32 times harder than you fought the carbon tax. Regards, Zachary, who's an MBA candidate at the University of Alberta. So there's a tuition hike for MBA candidates. And then there's what's going on in the U of A's faculty of law. The undersigned students, part of a letter that we're going to Tell you how to check out in just a moment. Graduates, faculty, alumni of the U of A's Faculty of Law and members of the public are reaching out to the provincial government, demanding that it revisit the circumstances. They're also talking to the dean of the law school, by the way, Dean Billingsley. They say increasing the cost of tuition by 45 percent to sixteen thousand seven hundred dollars would make a bad situation even worse. So let's find out what they're talking about. Denny Ram is a law student in his final semester of studies at the University of Alberta, was recently awarded the Justice Cecilia Johnstone Equality Award by the dean for his work as a political consultant and for co-developing an access to justice app. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Amanda Hart Dowhan has been practicing criminal defense and, and prison law since 2013, coming up on 10 years. Her practice specializes in the areas of criminal defense, 
charter litigation, habeas corpus applications, human rights issues, and police complaints. And Sarah Kreichel is a, a mom of two, uh, of Métis descent, a third-year law student about to graduate and begin articling. She's a writer for the award-winning Reconciliation Yeg Law Blog. Sarah recently co-organized a successful online protest against the proposed curriculum draft. To the three of you, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us this morning. Thank, Thank you for having us. Um, am I pronouncing your name correct? Is it Denny or Dennis? Am I am I saying it correct? How do you pronounce it? It's uh, pronounced Dennis. My mom spelt it the French way. It pronounces it anglicized for whatever reason. You, you know what, though? It's so funny. We always joke about this in Alberta. It's like anywhere else in Canada, you're Denny. And in Alberta, you're Dennis. And I just wanted to make sure. But uh, Dennis, let's talk about we'll go to you first. How, how does this 45 percent tuition increase? It might sound like an obvious question. But when you say and when your other panelists say that it makes a bad situation even worse, why don't we start with why is the situation so bad to start with? Yeah, I think, Ryan, it's important here to note that, you know, last year students accepted a 22.5 percent increase over three years. So students were already told that tuition would be going up 7% for three years. Then on top of that, in the last week of classes, instead of having to study for final exams, you know, some of our final exams are literally worth 100% of our class marks. Um, instead of studying for exams, instead we're here talking about another increase, a 45% increase, uh, which has received zero to little, no consultation. Um, there's just no idea with students on what's going on here. And especially when we're considering how the university has committed to increasing black and indigenous students and we can see from studies that even a $1,000 increase in tuition will decrease diversity but about 4.5 percent we can see that this tuition increase contradicts all the anti-racism work the school has done all year. Sarah uh, when we talk about law students uh when we talk about involving women in law and when we talk about black and indigenous women of color uh this is something i would imagine is, is more than just a debate to you this is pretty much part of your reality isn't it yeah um and i look at it too as an issue with the with the legal system as a whole I want Albertans to have an accessible legal system that understands the needs of all the people who live here. So without diversity in law schools, we don't get diversity in the legal profession. We don't get diversity on the bench. And we already have an issue where it's you know too homogenous throughout that system. A drastic increase to a law school tuition just rules out going to law school for so many people. If we look at an Indigenous context, which we always should be, um, band funding for Indigenous students might not be possible with this increase because their funding has suffered cuts from the government as well. And students who come from reserve communities can't just go get funding from the bank because the Indian Act precludes them from owning property. So they don't have anything to lend against. Amanda, you're... Uh I should mention as, as part of your introduction, you're a director with the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association. You're a founding member and the current president of the Alberta Prison Justice Society. So I guess what I'm getting at is you're, you're more than, than just about the brass tacks of practicing law. You're concerned about the justice side and the equity side of the profession itself. 
What sort of an impact do you fear that this tuition increase could have on the profession that you, of course, show up for every single day? Well, I, I think that law can be a very lucrative career in some areas. Um, certainly in, in large firms in oil and gas, insurance, litigation, um, law can be very lucrative even at the very early stages of your career. That is not the case for some of the more social justice focused areas, such as um, most of the areas that I focus my practice in. And my concern is that people who want to do that type of law will not go into law school if it's too expensive. If you have, if you're facing $75,000, $80,000 in student loan debt, you might feel confident that you'll be able to pay it off if you know you're going to work for one of the largest firms in Edmonton and you're going to make a lot of money right away consistently. Um, if your plan is to go into social justice work where funding is uncertain and where your, your salary is generally uh, not great comparatively, um, a lot of people are not going to do that if, if they know that they have to pay off $80,000 of loans. So that's, that's going to do damage to, uh, to the social justice side of the law where, where I focus. Dennis, people might um, on the surface be led to believe, you know, we hear a lot of talk uh, about tuition increases and, uh, you know, cutbacks or, or, or froze, you know, sort of the provincial government holding the line in some circumstances or dialing back funding for post-secondary institutions. But, but my understanding is that that might not be totally relevant in this case. In other words, that maybe more of the focus here is within the campus boundaries of the University of Alberta, as opposed to the Alberta legislature. Is that accurate? That I I don't know. Part of my concern with the proposed increase had to do with the, the way that the email to me, I, I'm also a, a sessional lecturer at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law. So I received an email from the dean in that capacity. The justification for the 45% increase seemed to be based on whether they whether they could charge it to the students within um, using the capitalist market forces. You know, is this in line with what they could, could students get a better deal somewhere else? That was the question. It wasn't, do we actually need this money? Do we need to raise it by 45% specifically? What do we actually want to, to do with the money? That wasn't particularly clear either. They kind of, they had some vague ideas, but nothing, nothing concrete. Um, so it really seemed to be more about, you know, we can charge this, so we will, rather than we really need this money in order to continue to function at a reasonable level. And we tried other ways to get it and couldn't. So we have to do this. Dennis, is that is that the sense that you get on campus as well? That this is this is more about what's going on at the university as opposed to something that may be due to outside political influence? Yeah, students feel that this is coming out of nowhere. I think one of the biggest things to note here is that 
all the faculties in the university aren't getting this same 45% increase. There are some other professional programs such as dentistry um, and engineering uh, MBA that's also seeing an increase, um, but these are very select and very specific and it's not university wide like we saw with the 7% for three years. Um, and you know, when we're touching up as well, uh, real quickly is about uh, the justification behind you know what we're gonna do with this 45% increase. A lot of students are having issues there as well. Uh, specifically, once this tuition increase goes through, other than Thompson River University, which receives zero public money, University of Alberta will be the most expensive law school outside of Ontario. And that is just ridiculous. That if, if you ask students, they're gonna tell you, it's an anti-Alberta policy that's gonna force local students, especially those in the rurals, those from lower incomes, and those from more vulnerable and marginalized backgrounds. It, this is just gonna price them out of law school entirely. And this is gonna stop local Albertans from going to law school. And it's gonna bring in, whether it's East Coasters or others, into a school that should be for us to educate. And this is gonna have a direct impact on access to justice something that was not calculated in the proposal so sarah i mean i and, and i i guess this question is almost it, it you'd give me a completely different answer if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic and if you were on campus and in a room with dozens of you know faculty members and classmates i'm i'm, I'm imagining that the majority of what you're doing right now is online are you able to get a sense of the impact that this is having on, on your fellow students in, in, in walking in the same shoes you are about to begin articling? What are you, what are you picking up on from, from your fellow law students? Well, I mean, everybody, everybody's pretty upset about this tuition increase. Uh, it doesn't directly impact us. It comes into effect for students coming in, in the September, 2022 year. Um, but we still feel like this impacts us overall in the access to justice context. So one of the things that the university offered to address issues of, of finances for students is to provide bursaries and bursaries are fantastic. They have been a tremendous help for me throughout law school, but they're not a guaranteed thing and they don't get announced or awarded until well after tuition is due and payable. Um, yeah, so I think that there's there's more that we should be doing uh, to ensure that EDI is is maintained, improved, and U University of Alberta likes to talk about their goals for increasing diversity, but a tuition increase of this size just it takes it away. And I understand that the UCP has cut funding significantly, specifically for the University of Alberta in comparison to other schools. But there's got to be another way to look at funding alternatives. Uh, we're getting some interesting uh, feedback on our live chat right now. These are people that are that are watching us live right now via our, our YouTube channel. Um, Sharon says, I have a family member who's fundraising for her master's right now, just trying to make it happen. You know, uh, uh, some random guy says, you know, why are we trying to generate revenue for the province from students who are already taking out the largest amount of debt of any generation mark says the cost of everything is going way up but you know no provincial carbon tax so you know and mark makes a great point how about this amanda um he says uh first of all prior to don getty 
the government of Alberta paid more than 80% of the cost of an undergrad education at the U of A. He says it's just a fraction of that now. U of A's law school used to be one of the best law schools in the entire country, and it's falling in stature now. Is this the type of thing that impacts the reputation of, and then obviously the drawing power of a faculty of law of a university over time? Are you seeing that even already? Well, I'm I'm seeing that you know they're relying on on this tuition increase as a as a measure of competitiveness with other law schools. They're using it because they want to attract the top research talent. They want to attract top students, but. We, in my opinion, the school is already fantastic. So we would like some transparency on what we stand to lose if this tuition increase doesn't come into place. We're not really being told that. We're just being told that the justification is um, to increase our competitiveness among other law schools. I've heard uh, future proofing for future or for yeah future tuition increases and. Those just aren't good enough reasons to reduce our diversity in the legal profession. I mean, we get we get people who go into courtrooms and tell their stories and they don't they're telling their stories to people who don't understand and who don't understand their lived experiences. And this leads to problems like we saw with the treatment of Cindy Gladue and Colton Bushi as victims. This leads to issues like robbing camp blaming a sex assault victim for the crime that was committed against them. Like we need diversity in the legal profession. And that begins in law school. Amanda, what would be some steps do you think, I mean, aside from reversing the tuition increase or decreasing, can I say decreasing the increase? That's a little weird, but you get what I'm saying. Um, What other steps could the university take? What other steps could the profession take? What other steps could law firms take? Uh, or, or what steps are organizations taking to to address what Sarah's described there and, and what I'm sure you see in courtrooms all the time? Well, I think um, from the university and the faculty perspective, the first step would be to see exactly how much money do they need? What what are their goals specifically? Not not a general we want more money to hire more Um, to hire more professors, but like how many professors do you want to hire in what areas and why? How much is that going to cost? How much money do you actually need? What is the shortfall? Um, So that's a good, that's a good starting point. Um, Actually quantify that. And then see if there are other ways that you can get that money. Um, Something that I've observed about the faculty of law um, compared to some of the other faculties. I, I was a, a University of Alberta graduate, both from uh, humanities and then from law, is that other faculties do a lot more pushing back as far as trying to get government funding. You know, when when there are cuts, there's more pushback from other faculties, whereas law just seems to kind of accept that and then just move on to offloading that onto their students because they can. Um, Instead, I think that there should be some pushback trying to see if they can get some funding from the government, even pushing back to some of those larger firms. Um, as pretty much everyone has observed, law can be a very lucrative profession. There are a lot of law firms that make a lot of money um, and also have a, a distinct benefit in having a well-funded law school in this area. Um, I think pushing in that direction uh, 
could lead to an increased source of funding from private firms within Alberta. Then only after the, the law school has exhausted every other possible stream of revenue, then yes, they should look at tuition increases as well as looking again at their shortfall and how badly do they really need um, the money or the new hires or whatever it is that they're um, that they want to increase tuition for. Amanda, I don't I don't want to spend all my time. I mean, you're a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, we should also point out, I, 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 maybe it's obvious or maybe it's not, but that this would also affect, I would imagine, who's qualifying for and ultimately who's serving in the Crown Prosecutor's Office, too, right? I mean, there's there's two sides to this where representation matters. Absolutely. Yes. And we, we don't we don't want to see a profession where the biggest qualifier for getting in is coming from a family that has money. And within law, we're already a fairly homogenous profession. It's uh, it's very common to have law families where, you know, my, my dad was a lawyer and my mom was a judge and my grandfather was also a lawyer. And now I'm becoming a lawyer and my brother's come, becoming a lawyer too. And, and that's fine. But we don't want to see more of that at the expense of having some diversity. We need to have different voices. We need to have um, different viewpoints and different experiences. And we, by raising tuition, we're eliminating that in the profession. And that's harmful. Uh, Dennis, people can can read this uh, this open letter, essentially. And I, and I know that you're looking to have people sign it uh, at UAB 45 dot com um pretty i don't know if i want to say pretty strong words but i mean you spell it out to to dean barbara billingsley at, at the u of a faculty of law let me read from the letter the disregard quote the disregard for future diversity and respect for students by faculty administration has irrevocably harmed student respect for the integrity and advocacy of this faculty and the university of alberta that's big you say we want to be proud of our degrees, not be associated with a system which works to perpetuate rather than eliminate inequalities. As needed, students are prepared to speak out much louder against these proposed increases to tuition. Specifically, students may resort to means inspired by law schools abroad when faced with an administration that does not value student input or diversity. These steps may include drastic ones such as in-person and online protests, but this is a last step students are hoping will not be needed. Take us into this. What have you seen elsewhere around the world and what would it take to get students marching, law students marching with pickets and signs at the U of A? Well, right. I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, if we look at the UK, for example, we saw just over this last year, administrations all across Britain, for example, tried to increase their tuition rates during the COVID year of online classes. And students were having none of it. Students were holding sit-ins. They were protesting. They were disrupting Zoom classes. Um, they were not attending Zoom classes. They were not submitting final exams. Uh, they were not submitting final course reviews. Uh, they were protesting or 
orientations. These are all steps that our student body is looking at and taking very seriously, Ryan. Um, specifically, when it comes to being a law student, there is a level of privilege that comes with this. Uh, you know, as uh, we heard others say, uh, you know, there's some families that are just lawyer after lawyer after lawyer after lawyer. And, uh, you know, if you are able to get into this privilege system, it's important that we take advantage of that privilege. Um, you know, specifically, my family, they were literally getting whipped in Fiji when this law school was founded. And my mom still reminds me every day how important it is we use our voice for something that is good. And we can see here that law students are just upset, Ryan. They are just upset. This is an insult. The dean has been coming to us saying she intends on increasing indigenous uh, students, increasing black students. We're going to increase access to justice. And then just does this that goes against everything we've been working for all year. It makes the actions of the law school ring hollow and it doesn't bring any sort of reputation positively to the school. The University of Alberta is one of the top law schools in the country. Uh, you know, we're top across the board, whether it's academics, extracurriculars, um, you know, we're winning international and national competitions every year. Um, but if we're reducing our diversity, and just as a note, in my year of law school, there are zero black students, zero. And now you're telling me that we're gonna decrease diversity even further? This is just upsetting. And, uh, you know, if you think I'm upset, uh, you should check out UAB 45 in the Appendix 1. There's a whole bunch of raw submissions from students and their emotions are just so much better than mine. Um, so please, I'd recommend anyone to check it out and just get the story straight. Well, I mean, you know, you're, you're increasing the cost of tuition to, to, to I mean, just under $17,000 a year. And you can imagine... I mean, for some people, Amanda, like you talked about, for some people, this is not an issue. Um, we acknowledge for some people, money is not a thing, right? They pick where they want to live. They pick the type of house they want, the type of car they want to drive. They pay cash for all of it. They don't even notice the difference to the bottom line. Tuition is whatever. Um, and, and oftentimes, these people also make big donations to universities and fund nonprofits and do wonderful things with their money. Not all wealthy people are bad, but there's also the reality that for a lot of people, $17,000 for tuition per annum is so far out of reach that the entire dream just absolutely evaporates. Like, forget about it. Like, it's just not even an option. It's not doable. Um, and I know that for a lot of people, this is the type of thing that's certainly going to kill the dream of working in the profession. Um, Sarah, you've, you've put a lot of effort into this this. Um, this law blog, I'm, I'm reading one of your posts right now, your year end reflection at ualbertalaw.typepad.com. Um, Sam, maybe we can put it up here on the screen. Tell me about this reconciliation YEG law blog, what the mandate is and, and, and what it's added to your, your experience as a law student. Right. So it's actually, it's a course um, where five, st five students participate each year. Uh, we select our own topic. So we selected a topic where five years after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission final report, we wanted to just assess how Canada was doing. So we actually did a, a report card. We graded every single call to action and we made a report card for an overall grade as well. Um, it was it was quite an experience. The TRC is something that I've always wanted to do a deep dive into. So it really gave me the opportunity to do that and to work with four other fantastic writers who are equally as passionate about Indigenous issues. Um, yeah, and I just, 
It was wonderful. And it's really sad to see that we're going to be increasing the tuition and preventing people who care about these issues, who've experienced these issues from being able to attend law school. Before we go, I want to give each of you an opportunity to, to give us something to walk with or give us something to think about. And obviously, I know that, that for you, a big part of this this call to action is is certainly going to be to visit UAB45.com. Check it out. And if you feel compelled to, to sign your name to to the letter. Um, but, Amanda, why don't why don't we ask you to make sure that we don't miss any angle on this uh, as people are going to be talking about this, you know, with their friends or it's going to come up in conversation. What's one thing that you want to make sure that people really hone in on detail wise that maybe we haven't covered quite yet? Perhaps um, the, the focus that I'd like people to, to take away is that. There's a lucrative area of law, but there's also a lot of areas of law where we do important work that helps to make other people's lives and our own lives better. Um, and that often does not make enough money to pay off huge sums of debt. Sarah, what's one thing you want us to be focusing in on and mentioning as, as the subject comes up, you know, with people in their everyday lives? I would, I would agree with Amanda. I think that the purpose of the legal profession is to serve its community. So if it's, if it's not accessible, if we can't graduate law school without $51,000 in debt for tuition alone, then how are we going to keep just the legal system accessible to everybody who wants to access it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Dennis, I'm not surprised... Um, your your previous career as a, a, a news producer and a reporter is shining through as you tell this story and and focus in on the key points here. But but I'd be remiss if I if I said goodbye to you all today and I didn't ask you about this access to justice app that you're co-developing. Can, can you tell us what that's going to be uh, uh, all about? And, and I would imagine it probably has uh, some some parallel motivation or at least some storylines that would run uh, right alongside what we've been talking about today in, in the context of equity. Yeah, um, actually, we're really excited about our Access to Justice app. Um, it is based, um, you know, over last year uh, in Calgary, there was a big anti-racism town hall that happened for three days. Um, from those three days, we just heard time and time again of unreported police uh, misconduct and unreported uh, police misconduct. So we wanted to put together a tool that handled police complaints because we've recognized that there's a gap in accessing justice with the police complaint process. Currently, it's just more or less a big open text box where you can fill in information that may or may not be relevant. Uh, you know, it can lead to re-traumatization and there's no check-ins to let people know if they're even doing the right information. Uh, so what we've done here is we've actually, uh, me, myself, and a group of three other law students, uh, we put together this app. It asks plain language questions. Um, and then from those plain language questions, almost the way a lawyer would, um, those plain language questions are then turned into a generated legal professional letter um, that actually specifies which areas of the law down to the act 51g for example is actually referenced in the letter and then sent off to the chief of police the calgary police the police commission and the and the minister of justice so this app is getting a lot of attention we're really excited about it it won the 2020 u alberta access to justice technology competition uh, it's now been submitted to represent alberta at the georgetown university international iron tech 
lawyer competition. Um, it's going in front of the Calgary City Council now um, to get approval for the final stages. Uh, we've been presenting as well beyond Calgary City Councilors to Calgary Police Commissioners and members of the Calgary Police as well. Um, we're really excited about this app. We're getting a lot of support, a lot of excitement. Um, so you'll probably be hearing more about that moving forward. Good stuff, my friends. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, the door will always be open here. Uh, I really appreciate you making the time to talk to us. I was taking a look at some of the feedback here live in real time. This is just the people that are watching live and and, and from uh, Brenda, who said just a she said just a, a fabulous. Uh, she said an awesome panel uh, with fine young people. And then she's used the smiling emoji two stars and then the big explosion so uh in my mind that's the best kind of review that you can earn uh on our real talk live chat my uh, big thanks uh to to dennis ram who's joined us amanda hart down and sarah Kreikel. thank you so much for making time for us and have a great rest of your week Thank you. Thank you. You too. Again, uh, UAB45.com is where you can learn more about that. Let's get to some of the other comments that Real Talkers are putting in front of us here. Uh, Mark says, can we not all agree that getting into post-secondary and getting ahead should be based on merit, like based on one's abilities as opposed to one's ability to pay? Lalazaz <laughs> says uh, the premier sees blue collar as his base. And he feels that going after post-secondary appeals to that base, says Lawlazaz. Wigwith says they only seem to count dollars government does when it's for public spending. If it were to subsidize oil and gas, they'd be all over it. Christina says, my daughter just told me last week she wants to be a doctor. Should I start the GoFundMe now? Wonders Christina. Yeah, maybe. I thought that was interesting. It, it, Amanda spelled out time and time again sam in that interview that yeah you can make she she just wanted to hit this this objection head on that you sort of anticipate the objection and you answer it uh veteran lawyer you saw right there she goes yeah i know i know that lawyers can make a ton of ton of cash law firms can make a ton of dough and you can do very well because she knows that people are going to say oh oh law students oh your 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 costs are going up before you step in and, and you know make 180 grand in your first year and 300 grand by your fifth year and beat it and she says what this is going to do is hurt people fighting for social justice, fighting for advocacy, criminal defenders, crown prosecutors, the public defenders, so to speak. Um, I thought that was an interesting angle that she continued to introduce as part of the conversation. I think so. <clears throat> I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that that's probably lost in this conversation because you're right. It's we paint uh, lawyers as a. Um, as sort of a homogenous rich guy club and and they tend to come from rich guy families and they tend to be white and those are the law families that she talked about you know um there are some people like you said that will never have a financial barrier to enter this i i couldn't go to law school no way you know and, and it's just and and you don't always get that reward of the corner office with the high paying firm job at the end of it um i think that there's massive holes in our legal system we like i mean think about the family law panel that we had where we talked about you know yeah. it's so much of the access to justice people need is is people that are trained in the law professional that like literally just help you fill out the forms that help you just get into the system that help you do that these are not flashy lucrative law profession jobs these are the boots on the ground that fights for the little guy yeah. and and you're right if we keep encouraging nothing but rich families to enter the law profession we're not going to have that 
I saw an interesting comment somewhere in our live chat. I don't have it in front of me, but somebody was talking about um, the impact that this may have on the on the the, the ratios of of uh, you know Alberta-based students or Canadian students versus international students. Um, we know that international students a pay way more to attend universities and b are an important source of revenue for universities. Um, and then I saw another uh, audience member this morning invoke the faculty of engineering. And when you talk about different faculties, um, I wish that we should have had the Uncle Sam cam on when I said the word engineering to see your face just light up because to remind real talkers, uh, you are an engineer. Uh, you are a professional engineer that happens to be the technical producer of this show, which is I even walk with swagger with that thing to brag about. Um, but when you talk about inclusivity, or when you talk about, uh, you know, it, it, attracting more women, more black and indigenous people of color uh, and, and other marginalized or underrepresented groups in professions. I know that engineering, that's been a big goal for a lot of people, including friends of mine that are engineers. They tell me all the time that that's something that's a real issue in that profession. It sounds like law is the exact same thing. Yeah. And, and I remember very vividly when I was in engineering school. Uh, one thing I should actually point out, I'm not a professional engineer. Well, you don't I have don't have a PNG. PNG. Yeah. Right. And that's yes. like, it's a designation. See, you can so tell, he's, a, you can tell, there, you can right? tell he's an engineer because, yeah. he, because he wants to clarify that. But you're right. The PNG yeah. is like, it's like, the, it's like being called to the bar. For exactly. Player, right. There's a, much like other professional. Yeah. Careers, there's a there's a process to go through. But, but you have a degree in engineering. I do, and and you know what I'm actually thinking about is when I was in engineering a few years ago at the U of A, um, there was surprise surprise there was another funding crunch, and the proposal that came down from the faculty of engineering was this thing that they called market modifiers, and and basically it was saying. You know, not all tuition on every course is going to be the same. If these courses have lab components, that they have expensive equipment components, like those courses are going to cost more money. And and it was really interesting because a lot of students really rejected this. And then the Engineering Students Association, run by, I think it's safe to say, a lot of rich white kids, fully endorsed this plan because they wouldn't feel the tuition increase. They over and over and over again said, oh, don't worry about this. This is students that start after us. We don't have to worry about this. This makes sense. And it was just, it was mind-blowing seeing people blatantly vote against their own interests and vote against things that will make their chosen career less accessible to people coming in. And, and that was... 10 years ago. It's kind of like people that don't want to address climate change in meaningful fashion right now, yeah. because by the time that we're gone, it's, it's not going to be our problem. It's going to be somebody else's problem, right? Um, Linda Ray says the access to justice app. Uh, she says this, this is why I think this government's raising tuition. The kind of uh, and let, let's be clear. The government is not raising tuition. Now, you may we may get into technicalities and you may say, well, they're downloading costs on universities that that may have no other options or may see no other option or may prioritize no other option than raising tuition. But technically, it's the faculty of law. It's the University of, Ber of Alberta that's increasing the tuition, right? We heard there the 21% increase, seven over three years um, due to the cuts, and then this one. And, and they're demanding, as part of this letter, the students and the faculty are, and members of the public, that that, that second increase uh, you know, be basically wiped off the books that they stick to the original one. But Linda says this is this is why this is happening. This this type of this type of dynamism and inc inclusivity scares this premier and this government. And there's a bunch of you. We appreciate this. Let, let me let me let me let me just pat everyone on the back for a second. Like you know, a whole bunch of you were saying that was a great panel. That was an excellent panel. Really loved that panel. Another great panel. And then Sharon says, "We'll smash the like button." 
I hate to be the guy if you listen to a lot of podcasts or you watch a lot of live streams and you'll hear people say like don't forget to like and subscribe and share don't forget to hit the like button don't forget to ring the bell don't forget to don't forget to but like every once in a while we do want to plant the seed uh, there's a whole bunch of you by the end of this day and and then more so by the end of this week thousands of you will have listened to this interview uh, via podcast or will have watched this via YouTube. It means so much to us. If if you if you like, if you hit like on YouTube, the algorithm will bump up our videos and, and real talk will continue to grow. And of course, leave a review and rate our podcast. Um, you know, I'm, I, I always love the, the Uber drivers that'll drop you off at the very end. They, they have a polite and diplomatic way of saying it, but they simply say, if, if you enjoyed the service, if you liked the ride, I would love if you took two seconds to give me a five-star rating because it's big for them. And the same sort of a thing is big for us on the podcast, Sam. Well, here's the thing. When you get that polite request, you always do. I do. When an Uber driver gives me great service and, and gives me that polite request, I, I immediately pull my phone out and rate them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good service gets rewarded. I don't know the background or the context of this, but Judy Bug says Ryan wants 69 likes today. Nice. I got this email yesterday from Grant to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You, re- you remember how this was before we were introducing Professor Tim Caulfield and we were talking about how we feel pretty good about ourselves and our accomplishments. And then we read the bio or the CV of somebody like Caulfield or like Dr. Shazam Nathani for that matter um, or today's guest. And then we just feel totally insignificant and, and underaccomplished and lazy, quite frankly. Yep. Um, and I don't remember what I was getting. I think I was excited. I think I was pretty proud of myself that I had like folded laundry or something like that. Um, I even kept like the whites and the darks separated in the laundry uh, cycle, oh, which well is, I mean, if you ask Carrie, my wife, that is a major progress for me. It saves you a lot of time on the back end when you're not picking black fuzzies off your white shirts. Yeah. Or I mean, the odd time where like a red, like a new red snowboard sock. Oh, uh, this is, a, this, is this is a very specific example. Um, <laughs> what did you dye pink? Yep, a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> a lot of things. And and the real problem was that very few of those were my belongings. Um, so I tried to remind Carrie at the time I sort of thought, pink is hot right now. Everybody's but it didn't seem to resonate. So Grant was Grant was inspired by our conversation about what we did to feel proud of ourselves, even if it's something small. Like those of you dog owners, I won't get too into it in case anybody's eating breakfast or an early lunch right now. But you know what I'm, you know what the spring brings. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you have probably spent an hour in your backyard, like just doing spring cleaning, so to speak. Dog owners know what I'm talking about. Maybe that's what you're proud of. You did it, darn it. And you, and maybe you took your, your your Christmas lights down, the earliest they've ever been down. I'm literally just describing my own life right now. Yeah, mine are still up. So really, they're not on. It's because you're working so hard on the show. Yeah, I just haven't Sam got the so ladder hard. out and pulled them down yet. He just he has no time to take down his Chris. You know, you're going to hit I'm doing it today. Well, like now that it's come up, I'm you doing feel it shamed. Today. Are you feeling? Sh- I'm not trying to I'm not trying to impose <laughs> pressure. What would happen? What would be the date of no return? How late would you say, like what would be the date on the calendar where you'd say, well, now I'm just leaving them up? Oh, boy. Um, probably if we got to like June or July and I realized I could just turn them on for summer parties. Yes. I'd probably just be like, hey, Christmas lights. You, are have, all, you have the yeah. clear lights. I have the string lights on my pergola in my backyard. Yeah. Uh, which is awesome. So I've got that in the backyard. already. Yeah, I would say I would say like if your lights are still up by the by the Canada Day weekend, if you're if your lights are st- and for sure by August long weekend, just you, then you're early. Well, and, and and mine are red and white. So I just turn them on for Canada Day. That would be great. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I, I kind of like, see, you're always finding the positive angles. 
So Grant was very inspired by our talk about what we're so proud of in our own lives. And so he wrote in um, and his subject, it jumped right out, out of my inbox. The subject just said, feeling pretty awesome. And I thought, all right, G-Money, what do you have to say? And he says, Jesperson, at the beginning of the show, you were mentioning what projects you recently completed that made you feel pretty awesome uh, before reading the accolades of your accomplished guests. Well, he says, last weekend, I decided to be proactive and replace my aging sump pump before I had any issues with it. Let me tell you, he says with a whole bunch of exclamation marks, if you want to feel badass and have the comfort of knowing that your basement is safe and, and, and dry, change your sump pump. He says it's, it's actually not difficult at all. I even had a, a great dad talk with an employee at my favorite hardware store about how great preventative maintenance is. Grant says, I truly have become my father. And you know what I thought when I read that email? You know what I thought? I thought, this is a perfect time to remind you that if you don't feel like installing your own sump pump, you can call the team at Todd's Mechanical. Huh? Yeah, that's right. Todd's Mechanical is Edmonton's best plumbing and heating expert. And if you don't believe me, check out his online reviews. They speak for themselves. And I know this because when Todd and I were talking right before Real Talk was getting set to launch and he said, I want to be part of this. And I said, I want you to be part of this. We, we vetted him like he vetted us. And I thought, well, is this guy actually any good? And we went and read his online reviews and every single one of them, they're like, this guy's unreal. This guy's unbelievable. This guy's dependable. This guy's knowledgeable. This guy followed up to see if we were happy with the service. And I said, yeah, yeah. We like the cut of this guy's jib. And so if you're looking to do furnace maintenance, if you got a problem with any of the mechanical elements of your home or your workplace, he does commercial industrial work as well. Or if you'd like to get a sump pump installed, Look no further than Todd's Mechanical at 780-499-7598. Write the number down. You might not need it right now, but when all hell's breaking loose, you're going to want to call Todd at 780-499-7598. Also, a shout out to the team at Park Power. By now, you know that they're in the internet, electricity, and natural gas game. But but how much have you learned about the company like on a, on a more community-based level? Like, have you followed them on social media? You might go, seriously? follow my natural gas provider on social media their social media game is unreal park power takes 10 percent of their profits every year and plugs them back into the nonprofits in their communities because they because they give a rip about where they live and work and they care about you too at 2021 real talk you take that promo code you punch it in at parkpower.ca and they give you 70 bucks off your first bill that's 2021 real talk at parkpower.ca save 70 bucks off your first bill Kim says, I can't take on more clients, but I want to advertise on Real Talk just to hear Jesperson promote my business. Just one time, says Kim. We're always open to talking at media at ryanjesperson.com. All right. We've been wanting to get into the results of our Y Station question of the week. This was last week's results where we asked you how you felt about the Alberta curriculum. Before we get into this, I wanted to tee up this email from Shauna McFury. Not her real name, but the ones she's using, and I like it. Ms. McFury writes in and says, Hey, Ryan, I thought I'd share a copy of the email that was just sent to all the parents of children who attend the Lethbridge School Division. She says it's pure gold. It's a letter from Christine Light, who's chair of the Lethbridge School Division Board of Trustees 
Uh, we're working on a panel, by the way, of school boards that are saying no to implementing this draft curriculum. So reads the letter sent back on April 8th. The Lethbridge School Division will not participate in the 2021-22 piloting of the draft Alberta K-6 curriculum released by government March 29th. School division trustees and administration have reviewed the content and engaged in discussion regarding alignment of the draft curriculum with the vision, mission, and priorities of the Lethbridge School Division. Unfortunately, the draft curriculum does not support quality learning that will develop innovative thinkers or responsible citizens with inclusive mindsets. This is from the board. We recognize that piloting curriculum typically comes with many benefits, including direct feedback opportunities and professional learning support. This draft curriculum as presented includes significant structural and content changes that alter how education is delivered. These types of major adjustments are typically not the outcome of a pilot. Says Christine Light, chair of the Lethbridge School Division Board of Trustees, quote, Alberta has been renowned for a world class curriculum. The Board of Trustees does not believe it would be ethical or responsible to have our teachers and students navigate the proposed draft curriculum that has an abundance of content that is not age appropriate, fails to adequately address diversity, fails to further contemporary learning competencies and lacks coherence and integration of ideas. That is the most polite way to call something a steaming pile of burning garbage that I have ever read in my professional career. So it's no surprise that more than 2,100 of you responded to our question of the week at RyanJesperson.com last week. You were feeling scrappy. And I mean that literally. I tweeted this tease on Monday when I told you we were going to get into this in 248 different open-ended answers in our survey. The word scrap showed up. And it was mostly when we asked you what you'd like to do with the new draft curriculum. 248 of you specifically used the word scrap. Sam, let's get to some of the other highlights. These graphics presented by the talented team at Y Station, our official research and strategy partner. Look at this. I mean, here are some of the numbers. This is what you told us. One percent of you. One percent of the respondents to our survey, more than 2,100 people responded, think the curriculum should move forward as presented. One percent. What do the other percentages look like? How about this one? If the curriculum is passed, 61% of listeners and viewers will try to correct the damage with supplementary material at home. More than six in 10 of you will feel more of an impetus on you, more of an onus on you to try to correct the damage. That's some of the phrasing that you've written into us as part of this survey. And how about this one other number, Sam? This was one I think that was really significant to us. Do you have the 98% one in front of you? How about this one? Did you see this? An overwhelming 98% of respondents said they wouldn't want their children learning this curriculum. 98%. So why don't I share my screen right now? Let's take a look at this. Here, we're going to dive into our top line report. If, if you say, gosh, I wish that Jessica would slow down on this top line. I wish I could spend more time sifting through this. Our Patreon supporters, and you can learn more about that right at the top of the page at RyanJesperson.com. Our Patreon supporters get this, the full top line report exclusive to them in their inboxes every Sunday night. When we asked you, do you think the government should start over completely and restart the process? 42% of you agreed. 
30% of you thought that they should scrap this draft and return to the old curriculum. And as mentioned, less than 1% believe that we should stick with the new draft curriculum with no changes. Here's what some of you had to say. Quote, scrap this entire dumpster fire of a curriculum draft and return to the 2018 draft written by experts with input from teachers and parents and community members. It was started under the progressive conservatives. It continued under the NDP. But unlike this UCP draft, the 2018 one is nonpartisan. Another says, you know what? I'm not sure what we should do about this, and I don't really care at this point. It will be politicized regardless. And our education has fallen so far that I don't expect much anymore beyond endless pandering to all the special interests and flavors of the month. You might call that someone that's that's lost reason for optimism. Let me point out that if you want to Google like PISA scores, P-I-S-A, uh, you'll find that our education has actually not fallen that far. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the politicking. Look to the numbers. Ask any teacher that you know. Literally, if you, your, your brother's girlfriend's cousin is a teacher, whatever, ask her or ask them. The teachers will remind you that Alberta is still upheld now, currently, is one of the best education jurisdictions in the world. Now, is that a threat? And could there be irreparable damage done with an idiotic draft curriculum implemented? Most certainly. But right now, don't allow yourself to fall into the trap of believing that Alberta's education system is a mess right now, because it's not. Here's one that said scrap. Uh, we should go through this subject by subject, said one audience member. Language arts and math, even science, could proceed with just minor tweaks to what we've seen. Social studies needs to be scrapped. We should use the current social studies program until a new one's completed. Wellness, physical education needs major changes, but the scaffolding is good. That sounds to me like a teacher talking. The scaffolding of curriculum? Yeah. That's not something that like a, a talk show host would come up with. When we asked you what values do you think that the K to six education curriculum should reflect? Get this. When we asked you about citizenship, uh, or rather citizenship and social responsibilities to one another, 96% thought that that should be a top priority. 93% thought that self-esteem and empathy and developing a sense of self should be there. 93% as well. How about this? This is an encouragement in what we oftentimes refer to as the era of reconciliation, however valid that may be or not, 93% of you told us that you believe that understanding indigenous history, contemporary indigenous culture, and reconciliation should be a top priority. 88% wanted to see environmental justice and stewardship a top priority. 85% of you, and I'll just read all three of them because there was a tie for 85%. These are top priorities. 85%, that is a top priority. A, preparing for a digital future in a new economy. Bang on. B, honesty and fairness. No wonder the politicians don't like it. And C, pluralism and multiculturalism. I wish we would have had Genghis Khan and the Silk Road, and I wish that would have been one of the options. I'd like to see the percentage of people that believe that should be prioritized in K-6 curriculum, in grade two. Other mentions... Stress reduction methods, ways to center yourself. I thought that was great. Practical life skills, how to manage money, how to manage a household, how to manage relationships, anti-racism, anti-oppression, and the diversity of lived experiences with the LGBTQ2S plus community, neurodiverse communities, uh, people living with physical and mental disabilities as well. 
We asked you if you were in charge, how would you want to see the public engaged in this process? And, and I like this. 93% of you said you want to focus on engagement with educators to understand their ideas and attitudes. I can't believe that this is something that it, it strikes me, Sam, in a way that it's perceived by some people as, as, as a matter of debate. Should we or should we not consult teachers on a curriculum redo? And I'm sitting there going, like, if not teachers, who are you talking to? Like, who on earth would you talk to? 93% of you say, obviously, focus on engagement with educators. Of interest, 43% thought that we should consult with industry about where they think gaps in the education system, where, where gaps exist. That's one that's really kind of fodder for discussion, I think. Because you might think that discussion with industry could really provide some insight into what can help people i mean you know it depends on on what do you perceive the the uh mandate of of education to be is it to prepare people for jobs is it to pre prepare people for life is it to, uh, to to help people become better humans is it even the playing field for people that are marginalized or underprivileged at the same time you may argue that if industry has too much of a say in curriculum then it will simply turn into a job production factory and industry obviously uh, you know under a capitalist model would have its best interests at heart as opposed to the best interest of the student which i would imagine why that's at 43 percent. what do you think i think it depends what industry um when and i shouldn't say you know only select certain industries but you know a lot of this kind of dovetails with this idea of uh preparing students for a future economy preparing that like you know things like code literacy is becoming a hot topic for curriculum and for young child development because we know that jobs of the future are going to require skills in you know programming languages that's going to become huge i've heard many times over that like the new factory job is coding the new blue collar job is coding and so i think that you know industries that see trends that are going in a direction that see the economies going in a direction should be able to say we need students trained on some of these competencies when they come out of high school that will better position them for the future. I think that highlighting, as it was actually said in that, gaps in the education system are very important and industry should have a seat at that table. I don't think they should be writing the lesson plans, but you know, there's, there's absolutely a place for them to play in that. On uh, our live chat, Haas says the new Silk Road is actually a thing. Um, Haas, I'm just saying not for grade two students, right? They're like grade two students. You're you're reminding them to not pick their nose and eat it like just just to remind us all like the level of sort of I'm not I'm not speaking in a, in a negative sense to kids. I think the kids are the brightest learners and and push us. And I learn something every day from my five year old. But I'm just saying like no two like two year olds is like you're great two. you're you know, you're we're talking about things like how to share and like what you know, like the basic premise of community and understanding some of the real basics. Right. And, and I'm not pretending like I know, you know, I'm not one of these. I mean, my mom is a teacher. I mean, I guess, you know, I always I always say to, as is mine. Yeah. So, and any, yeah, anybody that yeah. needs health advice, like my dad is a doctor. So if anybody needs health advice, I'm here with with observations that sort of it passed down through the DNA. You know, I can I can tell you when a puck hits your face, if you need stitches or not. But in all seriousness, uh, you talk to teachers and that's what they'll say with regards to the age appropriate nature of education. Uh, Alyssa says it's it's not the job of, of education. Education is not a job creator. That's not its purpose. Penny says, obviously, teachers are a huge group of very willing subject matter experts. I love this from Adventure Cycling, who's watching, says my wife incorporates mindfulness practice in her grade two class. 
one of the most needed skills in our world right now. I love that. I would love to participate in that exercise on mindfulness. Plus, you'd probably get some great insight from grade two students, just that sort of pure child angle. Um, others, I mean, the comments when we talk about curriculum, it's no surprise. I mean, it's just it, obviously you talk about education and healthcare. Those are the two things we spend the most on. And they're generally speaking, the two things that people care most about. Shalane says, I've been going around with this petition and there are so many people that don't know anything about what's going on right now. And she says, and I'm talking about parents outside the school at pickup time that from Shalane, an engaged citizen. Now, this is the part of the question of the week that we were really looking forward to. We presented it in, in, in cheeky fashion, perhaps, but it's a fair question. The premier's grandfather, Mark Kenny is included in the new draft curriculum. Now, some of you have written in to say Mark Kenny was actually a pretty big deal in the in the big band world in the 30s and 40s, and he was a big draw and a band leader and and in the in sort of the, the integration of, of big band into jazz and the journey in Western Canada. He's a name that, you know, you could make a good argument should be included. And, and others of you wrote in to say, seriously? And so we asked you, in honor of Mark Kenny, Jason Kenny's grandfather, and his inclusion in the music curriculum's jazz section, which member of your family do you think should have been included in Alberta's K-6 curriculum and why? And I love these stories. These are the stories of movers and shakers and difference makers, as we say, like like this one from a, a listener who said, my, my parents, Robert and Dorothy Gladish, who founded Cold Lake's first school for the handicapped so my sister could attend. Or what about this? My husband's grandfather, who was a prisoner of war in the Kananaskis and Lethbridge camps during the Second World War. He worked on sugar beet farms during his internment. When the war was over, he returned with his wife and daughter, sponsored by a farmer in Rolling Hills. What a story. My father, said one of you, as a veteran and an advocate for veterans' rights, he is the individual responsible for bringing veterans' license plates to the province and for having a highway named for veterans. This seems like it should be something that's known. It is part of our province's history. Or this audience member who said, my wife, who is an out queer woman working in Alberta's oil and gas industry, who holds two Red Seal certifications in male-dominated fields and has to be twice as good and work twice as hard to get half as much credit in the same job as any man who holds it. One of you said my parents deserve to be included in the curriculum. They came on boats from Vietnam, escaping the war to start a new life here in Canada. How about this? Audience member said my mom, Senator Thelma Shalafu, the first indigenous woman appointed to the Canadian Senate. She kicked ass. Huh, I'll say. Another said, hey, I don't care that Mark Kenny's included. Uh, the way that things are these days, it doesn't matter who would be included. Somebody would have their nose out of joint. <laughs> this one, my brother, he once fell off a log while crossing a creek and bagged himself on the log before rolling off, landing on the ice and breaking through. It was epic. That's an interesting one. Sounds about as important as Mark Kenny. Sounds about as important. Another I says, 
Did you have something you wanted to add to that one? Not really. <laughs> we have just, we have a lot know. of we actually have a lot of a lot of the write ins on these like the the have your say ones the open ended ones. Some of you are just like your your answers don't make it onto the show, but they're amazing and we love them. Thank you. Here's a serious one. One says my my grandmother witnessed Auschwitz firsthand. Uh, this right after our Yom HaShoah uh, roundtable. If you missed that just a few days ago on Holocaust Remembrance Day, I encourage you to check it out. What a powerful conversation that was. This audience member says, my grandmother told us a story of, of children uh, being separated, um, you know, her kids being separated from her briefly, and, and she, she knew enough, um, and, and, and she, she, she figured that if she could ensure that the Nazis knew that they were Catholic, it might help them survive. And, and it spoke volumes to me of, of sort of what she knew and how she was processing it and, and maybe what she had come to accept. Ultimately, she was reunited with her children. It was a miracle. And she was able to work on, unharmed on what she always referred to as a nice German family farm. What a story that would be to hear. We had those of you write in about your neurodivergent kids about your kids that bravely show up to learn every single day eager to learn despite disabilities and challenges this type of exercise as mentioned more than 2100 of you answering our question such a reminder to us about why we do what we do every single day and why we have the conversations that we have and we want to thank you we want to remind you that this week's question of the week is up at ryanjesperson.com so in partnership with y station we're asking you about Grace Life Church. We know that because they're posting the video of it. I mean, they're loving it. They're now meeting underground. One of you wrote in using our Real Talk RJ hashtag and said, this is like, this church is like mirroring underground rave culture now. They're gathering at undisclosed locations under the radar of Alberta Health Services and the RCMP because the, the church has the fences around it. I mean, just really unbelievable stuff. So we want to know how you feel about it. You know, Grace Life congregants and supporters have, have reacted to the closure in various ways, uh, including the fence being torn down just this past weekend. So we ask you, here's the question. What do you think about the move to close Grace Life Church? The fence is up. The door is locked. And where do you think the boundary between public safety and our guaranteed freedoms, particularly our freedom to worship, lies? Now, I'm going to tell you something really interesting about this. And I like that this is happening. This is a good thing. Just like our question of the week last week, we suspect was shared among groups of educators. I told you earlier in the show that the, the feedback we got on, on the demographic data to that survey of the 2,100 plus people that did it, 75% of them identifying as female, which is about 20% higher than typically where it's at. And it, it's, it's led us to believe that, that maybe the, the, the question of the week was shared. And we want that. We, it's not a bad thing when more than 2,000 people are answering our question of the week. We have seen an indication that our question of the week this week has been shared to a different end of the political spectrum. And I think it's great because we want to hear these perspectives. But it also means that it's important to us that Every single person that's paying attention to this story, every single person that has an interest in this story, every single one of you that has something to say takes the three minutes to complete that survey so we can again put data in front of you next week that gives you a good sense of where the public's at on this. I've seen some interesting data about how Albertans are feeling about seeing that church boarded up, about seeing that fence going up. I mean, it really fits the narrative 
You know, the pastor at that church, Sam, is, is going to be on the lecture circuit and writing books. And, 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 and Kirk Cameron, I'm sure, will play him in a movie uh, because for the rest of his professional career, for the rest of his life, he will be Alberta's. He'll, no, he'll think he'll be Canada's jailed pastor. Right. I mean, the, the, the storyline is writing itself for him. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious to see how it's resonating with people. I, I don't have much to add to that. Pastor Coates kind of has it made. But I mean, this is common in, in these sort of fundamentalist evangelical circles. It's I have to wonder if people get into that profession to be I'm just going to say rich and famous, because that sort of seems to be what they're chasing. They're not chasing a version of spirituality or a version of Christianity that, that most people identify with. They're chasing some sort of self-promotion. That's that's been the entire story of Grace Life Church. I think the most powerful, uh, and I don't—I hesitate to say the most meaningful, but let me say among the most meaningful messages that we receive, most especially the emails where people really put a lot of thought into it and really pour their heart into it, uh, come from Bible-believing Christians that are telling us that they're appalled by the message that this is sending and, and how this is portraying. And people are writing in to say, just to be clear, like our church has been meeting remotely or we've been doing the video thing or we've been online, you know, in some cases for years. And then I've been talking to people. I, I mean, what an opportunity for, for churches and other businesses. I mean, an opportunity for everybody through the course of this pandemic to broaden reach, right? To grow community, to make yourselves more accessible. I mean, I remember growing up in a church, hearing about how the pastors, a big part of the pastor's job during the week um, especially the pastors, they would call them like custodial pastors or community pastors, maybe not the senior pastor, but their job would be to, they always called them shut-ins, to visit the shut-ins. You know, another way to visit shut-ins is to make your church and your community accessible online, where people can sign into a YouTube and, uh, you know, a YouTube channel and, and, and participate each and every day. I actually think that for churches that have seized the opportunity, we talked to Pastor Greg Hohalter out of an Alliance Church in Sherwood Park, Alberta, a few weeks ago. He, he talked about exactly this, about the opportunities that this has presented. I want to get to something that was, was troubling uh, for me to see on social media and something I think that more of us need to be talking about in, in just a minute. But right at this minute, I wanted to rem remind you how proud we are to be partnering with the teams that at Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. There's six of their locations. And these guys, I would say, of all of our partners, they get the most excited when real talkers spell out why they're showing up at these six. Yeah, you, like Michael and Mark are always in touch with us going, we just love it. They're like, we just, the real time, we just absolutely love it. And so that's why I'm telling you, every time you're going for like a blizzard or a dilly bar or a dip cone or a sundae, or, or maybe you're taking something off the grill, when you're in that drive through window, or even when you're leaving a comment on the delivery app, you let them know, you, you say, well, I'm a real talker. I'm here. I'm showing up. I'm buying from you guys. I'm supporting you because you support my favorite talk show. You let them know that at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Same goes with Friesen Brothers. Just got off the phone with the team at Friesen Brothers yesterday. They're so excited about, I mean, we're, you're going to hear messaging um, in the next number of months here where we're going to start digging into some of the stories of their producers. They're so big into the stories of the Alberta producers that they've been featuring for more than 60 years at their now 15 Alberta locations. Everything from Alberta milled flour and their famous sourdough bread to Alberta produce whenever they can offer it as fresh as possible. And then beef, pork, chicken, turkey, and even vegan options all grown in Alberta, just like Friesen Brothers, which is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. And a big shout out to the team at Clean Air Club. More and more of you are visiting cleanairclub.ca. We know because you keep proving it to us with your photos posted online. Real Talk RJ is the hashtag, hashtag we love to see you use. 
you know how this works by now. You go onto their website, it takes like one minute. You punch in the size of furnace filter you need. They get you set up on a schedule. They even send them to your door so you don't have to leave the house. But still, you make sure your family's breathing easy and you're replacing the furnace filters on schedule, which virtually nobody does without a little gentle nudge. Save money and breathe easy at cleanairclub.ca. The hockey community um, mourned the loss of, of Colby Cave, his sudden passing, uh, and ultimately, I think, found maybe some closure as the former Boston Bruin, the former Edmonton Oiler, was officially laid to rest uh, just a short time ago. Uh, he left behind uh, his lovely wife, Emily, who uh, is a remarkable human being. And, you know, you try to put yourself... Uh, in the shoes of somebody who has suddenly lost a loved one, a spouse in their 20s, out of nowhere, uh, a handsome, fit, strapping, healthy young man who all of a sudden was on life support and who ultimately passed away. It was a shocking loss, to say the least. But the hockey community has has rallied around Emily and, and, and around the Cave family, and that includes just a short time ago at the celebration of his life. But I wanted to talk about an Instagram post, Sam, that, that she posted just yesterday. This is a matter of fact, just about 12 or 14 hours ago that Emily Cave posted this. Can you show the photo? This is a photo from Colby's celebration of life. But it's what Emily wrote that troubled me so. And I don't really, I guess, have anything profound to offer here except to ask you to continue to keep Emily in your thoughts, to reach out and show her support, and to apply what we're about to say here to people in your own lives who you know may be in a similar boat. She posted yesterday at m.cave, that's her Instagram account, after receiving multiple fake accounts, commenting and messaging me extremely hurtful and inaccurate things for the last 12 months, now even more so after Colby's service, I'll be taking a break from sharing and posting online, being called things like an attention-seeking whore, that my husband would be disappointed in me, that I'm causing him anguish in heaven, I have reached my breaking point. It has simply destroyed me. She says Colby would be broken for me. I am not in a good mental state as no young 27-year-old widow would be after the things that have been said and done. She says, I can only take so much slander and mental and emotional abuse, and I will not make it if it continues. I can say that confidently, she wrote. I will not make it if this continues. Amazing family, friends, and therapy can only do so much. Lately, she says, I'm petrified to look at my phone. I'm petrified to see what I've been sent or what people are saying or throwing at me, all while trying to grieve my husband and being thrown into the public eye. In order to regain my confidence, my self-esteem, and wrap my head around many things, I need to protect myself. I need to step away from something that has unfortunately helped me, not just with my grief, but with other people who are grieving. She says, I hope this won't be forever, and I hope I can come back, but I need to have my cup filled before I can fill the cups of others. 
She says, thank you to the 99% of people from all over who continue to love and support and pray for me. It's kept me alive, she says. I mean that. I am alive because so much of your kindness and love and support, thank you. It will never do it justice, but thank you. She says, it breaks my heart that I have to take a break from seeing your love and support because of mean people, but I'm a human with emotions. And sometimes it's really hard to ignore that 1% of people when it's so incredibly personal. She says, please always be kind. You really never know what someone's going through behind the scenes. Please continue to live out Colby and my daily motto of be somebody that makes everybody feel like a somebody. Love, Emily Cave. I read that, Sam, and I just stared at those photos. You try to understand what it would be like for somebody to suddenly lose a loved one like a spouse out of nowhere with no indication that a passing was imminent to try to move forward and then to be hurled such horrific insults on such a public forum as such a public person. I can't even imagine. And it was kind of yesterday prompting me to think, you know, this whole social media thing. I mean, I know that it adds so much. It brings people together. It allows us to rally for causes. It makes information sharing and discussion and shows like this, quite frankly, possible. It allows for for instant information sharing. It makes things more accessible and more equitable, and we could really dig into all the advantages of a digital world and, and global connectivity and, and accessibility in social media. But, but something like that just makes me think, you know what? I don't blame her for she's not maybe shutting down her account, but for simply walking away for a while. I don't blame her. And I think more people are probably taking steps like that for their own mental health. It's pretty unbelievable to wrap your mind around something like that. Especially lately, um, it's <clears throat> more and more and more. We just, you know, we're we're in this weird global time of uncertainty. Um, everybody's just kind of doing their best to keep their head above water, and and people that you know kind of have these glorified lives on social media keep creeping into the ethos, and 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 then there's pushback against that, and then there's also. Um, just a lot of vitriol and there's vitriol just because the temperature has been turned up to 11 for a while and all of a sudden you're given a forum where you can you can hide behind this little six inch screen and be anonymous um, and be mean to people and get a rise out of people and and it's it's bullying it's 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 exactly what mean kids in high school would do the difference is they don't have faces now they can't be held to account yeah and it's just I mean, you're right. It's an era that has given us so much, and I think there's a lot of good to take away from it. But, like, how low do you have to go to pile on somebody grieving an unbelievable, like, an unexpected death? Like, and like, what's and what's the motivation? Yeah, like, what's the motive? What, what what do you possibly? And I know that here, what we're what we're trying to do is is approach this from a decent angle and understand indecency which is virtually a fool's exercise, right? It's, it's almost impossible. What would motivate someone to do this? Well, I mean, aside from being a deplorable person, right? But, but you imagine the impact that would have on somebody. And, and I, can, I, can, I can try to understand. I can never understand Emily's what, what every day is like for her to wake up. And maybe you dream about your loved one. And then you wake up and you realize that they're not there. And it's almost like every single morning you have to remind yourself they're not there. Um, but to be afraid to pick up your phone because you just never know at any given moment. Maybe, maybe you're having a great day. Maybe you saw the first daffodil or the first tulip pop up, or maybe the sunshine hit your face, or or maybe you know their dog Chester. Maybe maybe Chester made her smile or did something, or or maybe she got an encouraging note, and maybe that day's kind of okay for just a little bit. 
and then bam, hit with something. And a comment from a complete stranger that can completely derail your day and put you in a bad space. I mean, she says, I will not make it if this continues. For somebody to say that publicly, especially a public person like her with the public eye on her. I mean, she's been forced to grieve essentially publicly, right? You know, when it comes to so-called celebrities, I mean, Colby Cave was a National Hockey League player. Emily's his wife. She does work with the Oilers, the wives and the girlfriends. And they do great work with the Community Foundation, Edmonton Oilers Community Foundation. She is a public person. Um, that's a whole other level of grieving because so many people are have eyes on you. I think the other thing is like when she's just sort of talking about like think of it your own way that you use social media or your phone or your experience and that kind of stuff too. And, and you talk about these situations where maybe she's having a good day. Maybe, maybe she wants to take a cute picture of her dog and picking up your phone and opening the camera on it is all it takes for you to see a spew of vitriolic messages. Like we're, we're so reliant on these supercomputers that we keep in our pockets now that you know, everybody's picked up their phone once and seen a, a notification from some app and then gone down a rabbit hole on that. Now, imagine if every time you pick up your phone just to live your daily life, that notification could be the vitriolic comments that Emily Cave has yeah, got. Brutal. You know, absolutely brutal. Scott says, you know, this is exactly why I won't buy cell phones for my daughters. He says this sort of cowardice is just rampant on social media. He says they'll have to be in a position to buy one of their own if they want a phone. Yeah, like I can't even imagine. You imagine, I mean, the bullying. Like, uh, I think of Retea Parsons. I think of like, there's so many stories. Ravina Verk. I mean, there's just so many stories of of and and young girls uh, that are so bullied and 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 slut shamed and just everything that we we understand to be so problematic. Things that didn't necessarily not exist before social media, but that are so amplified. You know, whereas before it may have been a nightmare to have. You know, rumors about you at high school scratched into the cubicle walls in the bathrooms or passed or around on a note, maybe a note, photocopied papers, yeah. distributed tape to lockers. Now, like now, you know, you can become uh, the, the subject of bullying or the laughing stock or whatever way you want to put it of, of a, a high school of 2000 kids in five minutes. And go beyond the border of that high school, right? Because you know that there's also a subset of the population that 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 smells meat in the water, yeah, and and can see that there's a 16, 17 year old girl in high school getting run up the flagpole online, and of course they'll pounce on, even they have nothing to do with this school. Yeah, Debbie's got a great point. Uh, says it's horrendous what Emily's been put through here when it comes to bullies. I try to think about what horrible things they must be going through to react in such a way. Crazy James says, when I was growing up, I was I was bullied terribly. He says, I can't imagine how it would be today. I don't even think that I would make it. Miranda says, you got to says parents got to keep an eye out. Their kids have apps that can hide their names. And, and there's a lot of bullying there. Chris says, I'm just so sad for her right now. And I'm just so disgusted at people for doing that. He says, I'm absolutely disgusted. So let's walk with this today anyway. I mean, first of all, as real talkers, reach out. Uh, she may not see it right now. I don't know. But M.Cave, Emily Cave is who you're looking for on Instagram. Just leave a comment on her photo. Just, you know, hit the heart, hit the like button on her photo. Just let her know that you care about her. You never, you've never met her. You don't know her. You never met Colby. You don't know. Maybe you're not even a hockey fan. Let her know that she's valued and, and that she's supported and, and that we care about her. And again, she said her and her her and her man, Colby Cave, every day, their daily motto, be somebody that makes everybody feel like a somebody. I love it. 
I've got a story about Colby Cave. It's like nothing. It's like a tiny little insight. You know, I work for the Edmonton Oilers as in-game host, and I remember seeing him come out once. Um, this is like this is just such a small and tiny, insignificant little thing, but it was my insight into Colby Cave off the ice. And he was walking out, and it's pretty unusual that you'll see. I mean, they were talking after the game where, like, you know, thousands of fans are spilling out. I can't wait to get back to that, by the way. Oh, I miss that so badly. And fans are spilling out with their, their jerseys, and everybody's happy. And, you know, you've got the, 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 the what do they call the, the Vavazula? Vavazulas? What are those big plastic? Vovazulas? Vuvazelas. Vuvazelas. Yeah. You know the one. The yeah. ones where you're like, if somebody. They were, they were made massively popular in the World Cup a few years you ago. You love them? Unless the guy right behind you has one. That's when you maybe don't love him quite as much. The point is, there's a lot of activity outside the rink. And all of a sudden, I look over, and, and I was waiting for an Uber. And I look over, and there's Colby Cave. And I was like, what? I mean, it's like, it's like an oiler. Like, he's just walking around on the sidewalk outside the rink. And you could see people kind of like, some people are kind of turning and looking. And there were two people that were waiting to get a cab outside the rink. And they were on a side street. And as Colby Cave went to walk across the street, he flagged down the cab. And got it for the fans, stopped it for the fans, and they got in and they kind of looked back at him and he just kept going. And I just, it's like not, not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a story. But to me, I just thought when I, you know, think of Colby Cave, that was one just real life thing, an off ice thing that I saw him do. I just thought that was, that was just a, a courteous, considerate thing. You know, I just like seeing that. You know, celebrities, professional athletes, real life people. I thought it was great. We want to remind you that coming up on Friday, this feels like a weird transition. Why am I doing this after all the positivity to now tell people to send us emails with their absolute rage pouring out? Why not take trash talk in a different direction? Why not call out some of the haters? Why not call out some of the bullies? Hey, talk at RyanJesperson.com is where you can send us the message. Local Waste presents trash talk each and every Friday. They're a valued partner of this show, and they have been. Since inception, for more than a quarter century, they've been working with business owners from the, the small ma and pa retail joints all the way up to the big malls, the hotels, what have you. They find solutions for garbage disposal, for recycling, for waste management, and they love going up against the big guys. They love to talk trash and they want to earn your business. You can check them out online at localwaste.ca and you can refer to them by first name. Ask for Chris or Lauren or Mikel and tell them that Jespo sent you. Do the same thing with Daryl at Westworld Computers. We love having these personal relationships with our partners. You know, you here, our audience members, like we hear from Chris and Scott and Debbie and Tracy, and we're reading your, it's the same thing with our partners, our advertising partners. Daryl was really excited to hear from that listener in Sylvan Lake the other day that reached out on the website, on their Westworld Computers website to, to get a charging cable for her computer. They felt like they were friends already because they've met here in a way on Real Talk. For more than 40 years, Daryl and his family have been owning and operating Westworld Computers independently, and they're very proud to have this relationship with us. It goes both ways as they, of course, power our Real Talk studio. And finally, a shout out to the team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You've been hearing me talk about this 2021 Jeep lineup and you know how excited they are to have Alberta's best selection of the Jeep brand at both their locations, St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Well, how about the Ram truck? When the Ram 1500 has won three Motor Trend Truck of the Years in a row. If you're thinking about getting out in the summer, if you're like my next door neighbor that just bought like an unbelievably beautiful brand new trailer, but you need something to pull it, look to Ram. You're going to find, of course, at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, the best Ram selection in the province of Alberta. 
Want to let you know that in shows to come, we're going to be getting into the federal budget. We're going to be talking about the impact that has on municipalities. We're going to be talking as well in a couple of days about what might very well be the most eco-friendly home ever built in Canada. Plus, following up on stories that matter to you because you let us know at talk at ryanjesperson.com. So that's coming up in the next two days. We'll be getting at it. And like Sharon said, don't forget to hit the like button. We'll talk to you soon.